time for Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. What is on the agenda for you and I today? Well, the first case on the agenda, I think, is a sort of a timely and interesting one out of the B.C. Court of Appeal uh, in the context of what uh, many of us have been watching out of Quebec recently uh, with legislation there designed to curtail uh, the right to have for people to have services in English, right? There's mm, been uh, yeah. uh, recent uh, changes there that have uh, restricted uh, the services that would be provided uh, in uh, English. Uh, which I must say is pretty remarkable watching uh, from uh, anywhere else in Canada. Yes. Uh, but in um, in B.C. here recently, there was a, a case dealing with um, some of the provisions of the criminal code dealing with language rights. Uh, and indeed, we have those. Uh, Section 530 of the uh, criminal code uh, deals with the uh, right people have uh, to have a trial in either of the official languages of Canada. Uh, and that section actually provides, section 530 sub 3, um, it indicates that, and it's mandatory, uh, that uh, when, a, uh, for the, when the accused person first appears in court on a criminal case, the judge or judicial official uh, there is required to inform the person of their right uh, to select a trial in either of the official languages of Canada. Yeah. Um, and so... In the uh, case that the Court of Appeal was dealing with, it was a man whose uh, first language was French. He was originally from uh, Cameroon. He moved to Quebec in 2013, a few years later to British Columbia. He was bilingual. He spoke both French and English, but his first language was French. Um, And it was uh, uh, common ground uh, that... uh, that provision of the criminal code, which is sort of this mandatory one, saying that you need to tell somebody about their right to uh, pick what language you want your trial in, was not put to the man. Um, and the uh, he had a uh, preliminary inquiry and then eventually a trial, and he was convicted. And then on appeal, he argued, hey, all of this was improper. I was never uh, presented with my right to choose to have a trial in French. I should get a new trial. Hmm. That was his argument, and yeah. he pointed to the section saying, hey, it's mandatory. Yeah. Um, and so uh, sort of on the face of it, it seemed uh, like a potentially compelling argument, given that his first language was French, and he just wasn't told. But here, in this case, there were a number of factors that the Court of Appeal pointed to when they denied uh, his appeal. Uh, the Court of Appeal pointed to the fact that on the uh, documents he was served with by the police, on the documents in French and English, it did say that you have a right to a trial or proceedings in French or English. Uh, they pointed to the fact, that is to say the Court of Appeal pointed to the fact uh, that the man had uh, a lawyer acting for him, who presumably would have given him legal advice, uh, and the man did not show up at his first appearance. It was the man's lawyer who attended for him, which is permitted. Um, and there was no uh, request for a trial in French. There was no discussion about it at all. The matter proceeded. The man testified. He spoke in English. Uh, And so the Court of Appeal pointed to things, including that he had a lawyer, uh, that there was this notice on the uh, document that he was given. uh, And the Court of Appeal said that, look, if there had been some complaint at an earlier stage, like, for example, after the preliminary inquiry, but before trial, there might have been some 
uh, remedy available there. Uh, but uh, because that had not happened, the Court of Appeal was not prepared to grant uh, the man a new trial after he was eventually convicted. But the Court of Appeal has pointed out that these sections are, the section is mandatory, and it's interesting. It says this, when you actually look at 530, mm-hmm. it says that a person whose, uh, whose language is one of the official languages of Canada uh, may make a request prior to or at the first day of trial asking for a trial in their, in their preferred language. Hmm. One of the things pointed out is that when you have somebody who's bilingual, that choice as to what somebody's language is, they point out, well, that's a very personal thing, and it doesn't necessarily mean your first language or even the language somebody might be more proficient with, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you had somebody whose first language was English, uh, but then lived in Quebec for a long time, spoke French very well, but they still preferred to have their trial in English, they would have a right to that. Yes. As long as they make that request prior to the time period set out in Section 530, it cannot be any later than uh, the date set for the trial. Uh, there is discretion if somebody asks later, like let's say the trial starts on day two, the person says, hey, by the way, I would really rather have this in English, I'm not quite following it. A judge would then have discretion, and they pointed out that a judge, that should be exercised in a very generous way. Uh, so as not to uh, deny somebody a, a right to a trial uh, in the language they prefer. It is interesting. The section actually provides that when somebody's language is not one of the official languages of Canada, uh, then there is discretion. It's not mandatory. But there needs to be, the court has also pointed out, some evidentiary basis to, for example, deny a request for somebody to have a language, a trial in a particular uh, official language. So, Let's say somebody on day one, uh, first appearance, the lawyer shows up with the person and says, my client elects to have a trial in French. Well, that's what's going to happen, right? Unless there's some evidence that the person doesn't speak French, for example, <laughs> right? Uh, that is just what is going to happen. Now, yeah. I must say, it does, you do you know, wonder what happens in the world of the bizarre, you know, what happens when the person says, I want a trial in French, and by the way, I need a translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. could they do all. that? Exactly, yeah. I think probably yes, <laughs> right? Because you could have somebody who says, look, I speak both languages. I'm not you know, necessarily uh, completely proficient in either. I'm going to select one, and now I'd like a translator to make sure that I understand all of this, <laughs> right? Excellent. Okay. Um, and then there are other provisions, like when one of these elections is made, a person has a right to, for example, a prosecutor who speaks the official language in which the matter is proceeding, right? Yes. And you have a right to have a judge who speaks that language, right? You shouldn't have the judge sitting there with a translator. And in BC, I should say, French trials are, of course, not common. I, I'm not even, I think when I last looked at it, mm-hmm. uh, the percentage of people whose first language was Cantonese in BC exceeds the number of people whose first language is French. Hmm, and so yeah. we don't have a high number of French language trials, but there are a, a cadre, I'm not sure they call themselves a cadre, but there are a group of both judges uh, and Crown who mm-hmm. are bilingual, yes, uh, who are ready to go. And so if somebody prefers to have a trial in uh, French, that would certainly be provided uh, to them here. Uh, and there's also a provision uh, for there to be a trial in both official languages, right? So you might have, for example, a circumstance where, let's say, some of the witnesses speak French uh, and uh, the lawyer wishes to cross-examine them in French, right? Mm-hmm. Because trying to cross-examine somebody through a translator is... Uh, a little bit of weak sauce. Yeah. And so 
you can have a circumstance where Bray says, look, these witnesses speak French. I want to cross-examine them in French. These witnesses speak English, and I would like to cross-examine them in English, and my client's going to testify in French, and we're calling two witnesses who speak English, <laughs> right? That's All a of complex that case. Yep. That's a complex case. But I must say, really important we have some of these provisions, because just watching what's going on in Quebec, yeah. um, you can just imagine how, uh, you know, uh, uh, political interests there uh, for example, could uh, easily uh, wind up in a position much like with that recent piece of legislation they've got there, trying to curtail somebody's right to uh, uh, a trial in anything other than French, right? And so, you know, if you happen to be accused of something in the summer visiting Montreal, you have an absolute right to request your trial in English, and that will be provided. Um, and because criminal procedure is a matter of federal jurisdiction, uh, the Quebec uh, government isn't able to uh, prevent people from having trials uh, in English. So there we are, Section 530, but uh, it didn't work for this particular person given those facts. But oh. uh, people should know that. If you prefer to have a trial in French or a bilingual trial, uh, that is a right you absolutely have. Uh, and if nobody says something to you, speak up, you, you will get it. So that's uh, Section 530. All right. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Last week, I asked you your thoughts on the legislature's spending scandal and update on that. And I know that you've done some preparation to be able to speak on that. We're going to do that right after this commercial break, folks. So don't go anywhere. It was a day that left me somewhat in shock. It's 2019, before the pandemic. I think it was 2019. It seems like a lifetime ago. Came to be known as the B.C. legislature spending scandal, I think, is as fair a way to put it in terms of just describing the overall issue. No, actually, it was 2018. It was a year prior to 2019. We had a court ruling or a court finding that was made known to us actually during last week's segment of Legally Speaking. I briefly mentioned it to Michael Mulligan. Now, of course, being a member of the legal professional lawyer, you want to do appropriate preparation before you opine on any matter. Having had a week transpire since that finding being made public, Michael Mulligan has that on the agenda for today's Legally Speaking. Michael, what are we learning? So, yes, indeed. So this was a the judgment that came out is a decision of Associate Chief Justice Holmes. Uh, she's a uh, uh, long-serving judge on the B.C. Supreme Court and an expert in criminal law, and her judgment runs some 70 pages, and it makes for some interesting reading, both in terms of what was going on at the legislature in terms of its appropriateness, yeah. uh, but also, of course, distinguishing what might be appropriate or wise uh, from what is criminal. Uh, and the some of the headlines at the end of this case were, you know, James found guilty, which is true, but only on uh, a very small subset of what was originally alleged. Interesting. Um, and as uh, the judge points out, she says, look, she's making her decision based on the evidence presented in the trial. And of course, that could be different from what was considered in the, the investigation that uh, retired uh, uh, Beverly McLaughlin conducted or what the speaker uh, conducted from non from a non criminal perspective, but the the essence of it is uh, there were sort of several elements to what uh, this, he was charged with doing uh, improperly as either a breach of trust or fraud, um, and the first sort of uh, uh, collection of things was uh, an allegation that he had improperly received uh, this uh, long service or retirement award of some two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
uh, that was perhaps the largest amount of uh, money uh, sort of at stake here. Yes. And the judge's analysis of that's interesting because she starts with sort of the history of that uh, payment and where it came from. Yeah. And the payment was actually started back in 1984, three years before Mr. James started working at the legislature. Mm-hmm. And the history of it is that, you know, the people that refer to as table officers, they're yes. like, if you watch the legislature, the people sitting there uh, in the middle with a bunch of books who are there to give uh, sort of you know, legal advice and assist with uh, the operation of the uh, legislative assembly. The history of it is that those people used to be, back in 1984, practicing lawyers uh, who were had ran their own practices but would show up uh, and fulfill that role when the legislature was in session. I didn't know that. Interesting. And, and they weren't they provided with the sort of benefits that would be provided to regular government employees, like they didn't get uh, vacation pay and they didn't get pension and, and so on, right? Yeah. They were paid, I think, something for their time. But it was recognized that these people were doing this was a, you know, took a substantial amount of their time. Some of them were doing it for like 20 years. And so they implemented uh, this long time service slash retirement benefit to sort of compensate them for the fact that they were doing this for years and they weren't getting the kind of benefits that a regular government employee would get. So that's where it came from. When Mr. James started, he did start getting those regular benefits. The process had changed, but the policy was still in place. And there were still some people who would have been sort of under the previous scheme. And then what happened is that one of them became seriously ill. One of the people who was had been serving in that capacity as a table officer, but not getting regular government benefits. Uh, and so Uh, There were then inquiries were made uh, by Mr. James about whether that person would be entitled to retirement, this retirement benefit. And Mr. James consulted with a senior lawyer and gave them the lawyer all the material and background about this policy. And the lawyer's opinion was, yes, he's entitled to it. Um, And it would also appear that in passing, uh, the uh, Mr. James asked the lawyer whether he and other officers would be entitled to it. And there was a response in the affirmative from this lawyer who was not some friend of Mr. James, just a lawyer offering a legal opinion about it. Yeah. The lawyer testified and said, well, that was just sort of a passing comment I made in this email in response to the inquiry. Uh, But the judge found that, you know, it was uh, the Crown had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. James didn't just rely upon this conclusion from the lawyer that he was himself entitled to that benefit. Hmm. Um, And so even though the judge thought that uh, she came to a different conclusion from the local lawyer about whether he should have been entitled to it based on some interpretation of um, the language and the thing which said, and therefore (laughs) some wording like that, there were obviously reasonable people could disagree from a legal perspective about whether he was legally entitled to it. And, because there was this uh, uh, opinion, yeah. uh, then the judge said, look, she just couldn't be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt, even though she thought he probably wasn't entitled to it, that he that the Crown had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he knowingly sort of fraudulently obtained this, right? You say, well, he may have accepted this advice that he got. Yeah. And so that was the end of that uh, charge. He was found not guilty of that one which involved the largest amount of money. 
then with respect to the uh, well-known wood splitter, yes, <laughs> uh, which I must say, I still hope that the government takes up my suggestion that we set up a sign-up <laughs> list and tour it around the province so we can sign up to get our wood split. It can go with the museum splitter. stuff, yeah. Yeah, they could, put, they could park it on the museum lot. That's a great <laughs> idea, right? we got space over there. You could bring your wood down and split it. It'll be great. Maybe a, tur- maybe a tourist attraction, right? Oh. Um, and, and I must say that the rationale for buying this thing seems rather re- ridiculous. It does the, on the its face, says, doesn't it? Yeah. The, ju- the rationale, the judge says, for purchasing the wood splitter and chainsaws was that they could be used to clean up debris and remove damaged trees and hydro poles, which in turn could be burned and used for warmth if electrical power were to be lost. Now, <laughs> let me just tell you, as somebody who does have a wood stove... <laughs> It's not a good idea to split up a green tree and then try to toss that in your fireplace. You're not getting far. Uh, anyone who knows anything might uh, tell you that uh, real wet wood would be a poor choice, as would be, I think, a telephone pole soaked with God knows what. You're, prob- you're probably smothering everyone in the legislature if you were to try to light that thing up and somehow got it to catch fire. But as the judge pointed out, um, evidence there was no way, and they wound up at his house, right? Which yeah. raised some suspicion. Yep. And they were subject to this forensic examination uh, by the Victoria Police, who conducted a forensic examination of the wood splitter I forgot about and that. identified signs of light use, including scratches, marks, uh, and uh, grease <laughs> on the handle uh, and uh, some rust. And so there was some suggestion that it had been used. But on the other hand, there was some evidence that when you get something like this, you might want to make sure it works. So if you have to start cutting up the ceremonial tree from the legislative lawns to start a wet wood fire, <laughs> everyone warm, you want to make sure that it's going to somehow work. Uh, and the judge pointed out that, for example, there was no evidence that Mr. James had a wood-burning fireplace, which is oh, why would he want important. It uh, and neighbors were called, and nobody ever saw him use the wood splitter or huh. heard the wood splitter going. That's and so curious. the judge was suspicious, but as she pointed out, that's not enough. No, that's uh, not. And so, again, he was acquitted. Uh, and then there were all these things that were purchased, right? He, he was uh, a prolific spender. He was buying all kinds of uh, uh, things at gift shops and books and posters and everything one can imagine. Uh, but there were various explanations about how these were protocol gifts or they could be given to staff members as gifts or given when visiting other uh, legislative legislatures that he was traveling to. Or one of the terms I found uh, smile-worthy was uh, uh, they were uh, potential, uh, 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 what do you call it, um, uh, <laughs> Trials for the gift shop at the legislature, right? The idea that <laughs> somehow these could be uh, items, which is, yes, that's right. They were prototypes. That was it. Prototypes oh, okay. for the gift shop. Oh, so, okay, okay. So very suspicious. But as the judge pointed out, you know that the, the uh, amount of spending uh, there uh, was, appeared to be very high. She said there's no question that the number of purchases was astounding or astonishing. Uh, even though they were over a five-year period, but pointed out that the charge is not that Mr. James took a lavish approach to his role, which seems clear, uh, or that he could have uh, provided less ex- uh, less expense for all these things, but that wasn't enough. What, finally, what did catch Mr. James at the end of the day uh, amounted to uh, purchases of clothing. 
And the background of that is that the clerk sitting at the table in the legislature have traditionally worn gowns, like a lawyer's robe, yes. and uh, tabs, and like court shirts. Yeah. Uh, and so it was permissible to purchase those things which were used like as uniforms, effectively, in the legislature. Hmm. That was permissible by policy, right? If you needed a new robe to sit there at the table, that was permissible. Yes. Uh, but uh, what finally caught Mr. James was that uh, he had purchased two suits, a shirt, and a tie. Uh, and in the claims for those items, uh, he wrote down on them things which uh, appeared to be intentionally uh, misleading. Like for the tie, he wrote on the receipt tabs. <laughs> oh, which I see. Suggests that they were like the, yeah. uh, you know, tabs and uh, one of the other uh, a dress the dress shirt okay uh, he had written house shirts okay like, so the there's character. a misleading element potentially i see and that was enough that's okay. what finally tripped him up uh and so he was convicted of uh fraud on the basis of his claims for this $1886 for the tie suits and shirt hmm. but acquitted of everything else um and he was found guilty of fraud. He was charged with fraud over $5,000 because of all these. There was all this other stuff that was purchased. There were suitcases and yeah. which were supposed to be some kind of a luggage pool, you know, all this stuff. But the judge convicted him of what's referred to as a lesser included offense. Hmm. And the idea there is if you're charged with a more serious thing, uh, but the Crown doesn't prove the more serious thing, that being fraud over $5,000. But if there is a lesser offense that you must necessarily commit in order to commit the more serious offense, mm -hmm. you can be convicted of that what's called lesser included offense. Hmm. So Interesting. even though he was charged with fraud over $5,000, he was convicted instead of fraud under $5,000 because the, the two suits, shirt and tie, totaled, uh, and I think some travel expenses related to the purchase. Uh, they, apparently the uh, one of the suits came from Brooks Brothers in Vancouver, hmm. totaled $1,886. So after all of this, <laughs> wow. uh, that was the outcome. And I guess one of the other takeaways here is the, uh, you know, the separation necessarily between criminal law uh, and what may be terrible management, bad judgment, lavish expenditures, right? Yes. All of which are subject to appropriate uh, criticism, right? Yes. But whether it makes it to the criminal threshold is quite another matter, right? I see. Uh, and so it's a uh, it's an interesting read. It's this uh, you know decision of a very experienced judge who knows her stuff in terms of criminal law, uh, and uh, so that's the outcome. Um, I still don't know quite what's become of the wood splitter, but I think we've hit upon the very best thing we could possibly do with it: park it at the uh, <laughs> park it at the empty lot that was the museum. It'll help uh, with the demolition. Yeah, we can split it up and we can burn the, uh, what, I don't know what they soak telephone poles with, but I'm pretty sure I don't want to be breathing it in. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Even if I'm really cold. Michael so, Mulligan, thank you so much for the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye now. Michael Mulligan, every Thursday, legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070.